Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While in anticipation of Doug Ford's press conference at 1 o'clock, we preview what could happen and what we believe should be in place to reopen the Ontario economy. Hamilton Councilor Brad Clark has resigned from three city committees after a private phone conversation was posted to social media. John Best from the Bay Observer joins us to talk about that. And every day in the pandemic is a day to think about what we should be doing differently. How do Canadian leaders think about and decide on what they're going to do? Interesting article about that. We're going to discuss that with the author. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get back to what's going to be happening later on today with the economy. Premier Doug Ford has suggested an announcement could come as early as today, 1 o'clock this afternoon. He has his usual uh, media conference. The president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Rocco Rossi, who was on our program just the other day, and he is asking the province not to do any reopening without some new measures in place. So it's important not just to say we're going to reopen, but how is this reopening going to be different? What additional measures are going to be put in place so we don't simply go back to where we were. Well, therein lies the problem, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've been there, done that before with reopenings, and uh, it hasn't worked well uh, in in the last couple of instances where this has occurred. So we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions, not just about what's going to be happening with business, but about with us as well, because there are some other factors that come into play here. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Chris Bach, who is a research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious diseases and outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Chris, good to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. I guess I guess let's start with maybe one of the most basic questions. Are we ready to do this if we're going to go down, get rid of the lockdown? Are we prepared for this? Yeah, so I, I think the devil's in the, in the details. Um, I, yeah. I think if uh, it depends on how we do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, for example, I, I think a careful approach where we first start with the least affected areas uh, um first, and if we reopen with restrictions, I, I think that's really the key to, to making this work. Uh, and those restrictions include things like avoiding any situation where you might have people uh, in a room without masks for a long time, you know, so, so even small group gatherings um, without masks are a terrible idea. Um, so yeah, the devil's in details, basically, in terms of whether or not we can do it. I had uh, the education minister on the program the other day, Stephen Lecce, and uh, he was talking about the reopening of the schools, which uh, are going to start, of course, this week, and some of the other ones are going to catch up a little bit later on. But I asked him the very same question, uh, and and I think it applies to all of us, I guess, on a more general basis, Chris. Um, You know, we've tried this before, and it didn't work. Uh, What have we learned from this? I mean, you know, we've got Let's let's look at the the realities that we face here. There are variants to this virus right now that are coming out. The Brazilian uh, phase of this, the UK phase of this, the the South African phase of this, uh, and we're all told that all of these variants here are probably more infectious than the one we've been dealing with for the last year. Is this really the best time to say, okay, guys, let's start opening the doors again? Yeah, it's it's a, it's risky, I have to say, because this variant is. Uh, a whopping 50% more transmissible. Um, so, you know, as it spreads, the stuff that worked against the old variant isn't going to work as well. Um, so, I mean, we do have some things working in our favor, like uh, the, the days are getting longer and, and eventually the, <laughs> it'll get warmer outside and we can move more activity outside, but that's not going to happen for a while. So uh, it is a really risky time, and that's why, you know, it has to be done cautiously. Uh, I, I think um, waiting a week for the the hotspots is probably too quick. Um, I would say, you know, working uh, uh, the kind of less affected areas, less populated parts of province, I think it's okay to let them reopen with restrictions. I wouldn't go ahead and reopen the hotspots next week uh, because that that variant is is, uh, a real problem. And of course, our our vaccinations have stalled. So, so, um, So I would delay that a bit longer. And there it is. I mean, listen, I'm the first guy to, to say, look, we need to do something for our small businesses, and, and the government's got to step up, and we get all that, and, and opening the doors is, is, a, is a good first step in that. But, you know, like I said, I'm going to go back, as you and I have talked about in the last couple of months, and, and look at the history of this. And it's, it's only been 12 months, but it seems like it's been 12 years. This has gone on for so long. But we weren't prepared. You know, back in the first wave, we said, okay, when we hit this target here, then we can start doing it. Well, we never hit that target when it came 
into flattening the curve. We came close, and we thought, oh, okay, close enough, let's go ahead. Well, it wasn't close enough, because we saw, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, summertime came along, and the numbers went down, but boom, we started to, to peak again, and we started to get some bumps, and we're starting to see that again. I know the numbers are down from the way they were four weeks ago, and, and you know, let's let's be practical about this. The, the shutdown probably was a factor in that, if not the major factor, but uh, we're not where we need to be right now for us to feel comfortable about this, are we? That's, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great point. Um, so, and this has been studied uh, in uh, various analyses of, of countries who have tried different things over the past year. And it's been found that the countries that, uh, you know, acted to control the virus quickly and do a hard lockdown were able to get out of lockdown faster uh, and were able to reopen their businesses sooner. Um, so, you know, um, but the difference is Ontario is so heterogeneous, right? So you have these core areas where there's lots of virus activity, and then you have other areas which you see very little. Um, and that's kind of why I, I think in the case of such a geographically diverse place as Ontario, you know, a place like Sudbury, you know, maybe it's okay for them to reopen if they can um, close down quickly uh, if they are seeing a lot of the ver- case of the variant. Um, but it's probably too early and uh, for the hotspots, and they should get uh, case numbers lower um, uh, um, so that we don't have to lock down again in, in, in you know, halfway through March or in April. Uh, we, we always have to be thinking uh, one step ahead. And if we're too impatient, that's, um, that's, that, that's actually going to hurt us in the long term. It's going to hurt our businesses in the long term. So, so yeah, you, you have to, uh, um, so you ha- we have to get those cases lower, uh, and, and especially because we have the variant coming. But even before that, we always, you know, we've known from the experience of other uh, countries that if you want to reopen the businesses, then you get your cases down as low as possible through a hard lockdown, and then you contain it through rapid testing, tracing, and isolation. That's really what, what you have to do. Um, and so that's why I think it's a bit too early for those, those hot spots in Ontario. Well, and this is something that's, that's bothering me, and it, ever since we talked about this late last week and we thought, okay, that sounds like the announcement's going to come because the, the Premier even kind of teased us about it the other day. Uh, the, the two things you just mentioned here, we're not doing much of. Um, you know, contact tracing is one of them, and you know, very few people apparently have actually even downloaded the app that the government's put out there some months ago. Guys are afraid of privacy concerns and everything, which is bogus, but it's still there. It's in people's heads. But the other is is rapid testing, which is available to us. Uh, and again, the federal government has allocated millions, if not billions, of dollars right across the country to places, including Ontario. And we're still not doing it. I mean, that money's sitting there someplace, and we're not doing it to the extent that some of these other jurisdictions like Israel and others that have done pretty well on this uh, have utilized to try to get there. I mean, it, it's I, my concern here is I don't think our government's getting the message of what we need to do. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the problem is exactly. I'm not an expert on the logistics of, of testing and uh, of that side, but I can tell you that, you know, in the models, what we do is we say, well, okay, here's how long it takes to get a test result back, and here's how many people we can reach through contact tracing. And if you can get those numbers within certain ranges, you can contain it. And we're mm-hmm. not there, and, and we never have been. Um, you know, so testing has to be 24-hour turnaround, uh, and then contact tracing has to be successful. Um, and I, I think definitely in terms of the testing, well, that, that's on the government side. Uh, contact tracing is both a question of government and, and population buy-in. Uh, and in both of those respects, you know, we, we haven't been able to reach that threshold where we could contain the virus um, but we can, you know, get really close. It's not entirely a, 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 um, a, a, an on or off thing, right? So even if you have pretty rapid testing and pretty good contact tracing, it doesn't make an impact. It just doesn't allow you to get to zero cases like, like you, like you know, some countries have been able to do. I'm just wondering, because it comes down to mindset, you know, even during this lockdown, uh, you know, we know that inspectors went around and the places that were still allowed to be open, a lot of them, of course, big box stores, the, the, the Costco's and the Walmart's and everything, and uh, there was a, a troubling amount of, of, of stores that were not complying with this. So they, they weren't doing uh, the social distancing the way they were supposed to. They weren't enforcing the mask things, etc., uh, which tells me that it, our heads still aren't around this. And, and what I'm concerned about here is is that, you know what, if we go to a third, you know, if we have to shut this thing down again, uh, from a, a mental health standpoint and from an economic standpoint, uh, 
I mean, that, that, that's not where we want to go right now. Like, how many more times are we going to do this before we have to learn that we got to do this? I, you know, I, and, and again, I, I, as I said earlier in our conversation, I want this to happen. I want to open the doors again. I would like to think that we're ready for it, but I'm not seeing the signs that, that, that you have told us that we should be looking for to make sure that we're ready to do this. But in other words, is there a foundation here for us to build on? I'm, I, I don't think so. I think we're still on pretty shaky ground. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the cases have dropped, but they're still pretty high compared to where where they were in you know August and September. So, um, uh, and I'm on, I'm on. You know, I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, I want to see these. I want to see the businesses open too, and I want to I want to be able to go out and see my friends too. But um, you know, we we can't be impatient, and we you know we have to uh, get the case numbers down to the point where we can keep them down. Uh, and uh, throughout the uh, throughout the rest of the spring into the summer, uh, and that will that will take a bit longer. Um, so so we you know so I yeah I agree that that it's it's too early to uh, next week is too early to to reopen those those hot spots unfortunately. And, and when we say hotspots, I mean, I know that they've talked about and we're dealing in speculation here right now because we have to wait for the official announcement, I guess, from the Premier later on today. But they're talking about the GTA and Peel region and places like that. In other words, the greater Toronto area uh, is, is one of the hotspot areas. Uh, you know, Hamilton had some numbers before the lockdown, and the, I've, I've looked at the tracking on that, and it doesn't seem to be doing too bad right now. The number's gone down considerably. Ottawa, who used to be one of the worst places in the province, actually is, is very much in compliance with what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you tell everybody else in the province, okay, guys, knock yourselves out in Toronto, you guys can't do that? Is, is that going to solve anything? Because what we've seen in the past, Chris, is that when you do that and say, okay, this area, yes, this area, no, people go to the other areas. And, and you know, in other words, the hot spot, the people that live in those hot spots go someplace else, and all of a sudden they, they're potential carriers. Mm. Yeah, so... Yeah, there's a couple of interacting factors here. So, so, so first of all, you've alluded to, you know, what is a hotspot? And yeah, it's Peel Halt in Toronto, York, and this is driven by population density. So, if you mm-hmm. look at uh, the the biggest predictor of, of COVID cases is is, is uh, per capita is the population density, um, uh, and so that's why those areas are hotspots. It's because there's people living close together and they can't distance effectively. Um, so, about the travel, that's an interesting point. So, yeah, we can't simply reopen, you know, Guelph and Sudbury and London. Uh, um, you know, the best we could do at this point would be to go to the red zone, that old red zone, uh, and even that was pretty lax, I, I think. So, so there would still have to be pretty hard caps on how many people can you can allow into restaurants. Um, and you know, I, I think in terms of the traveling, it really depends upon uh, how far people are from Toronto, from the hotspots, and what kind of businesses you're talking about. So, for example, someone's much more likely to drive from Toronto to, you know, Guelph, where I live, for dinner than they are to Sudbury. Uh, and so I think geographic distance is a factor, too. And, you know, for example, I would say Sudbury-Timmins, uh, you, go, you go ahead and go to Red, uh, perhaps not Guelph just yet because of this travel issue that you've, that you've mentioned. Uh, and and um, that would be the safest way. You're, if you're going to do it, you start off with places that are low density, and far away from from the core areas, from from the hotspots, because uh, you know there are ways to track this sort of thing. And I know that you know when we were talking about this, and I had a number of opportunities to talk to our listeners about this. And are you are you obeying the rules? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm staying at home. And no, you're not, because <laughs> you know the the cell phone companies and the carriers are, are tracking this stuff, of course, with our phones, and uh, and they they basically gave the government this information and said, you know, even during this four-week four lockdown, we were not staying at home. We were traveling. We were going to this flat and the other place all the time. Uh, and, and, you know, notwithstanding that, of course, the numbers still seem to go down. But it's 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 concerning, I guess, to think that, okay, uh, we're going to think that everything is fine here. And, and you mentioned right in the beginning of our conversation, uh, we have to look at the realities here. We're not going to get vaccines as quickly as we thought we were. We have to accept that reality. And I don't want to get into the politics of it. The fact is it's not going to happen probably until the fall, uh, September, October, November, that sort of thing, for most of us anyway. So that's not going to be our savior. Uh, it's, we really just have to be compliant like this. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm still getting the sense that something that you and I talked about even before Christmas, us, was we're getting a little tired of this. We don't want to do the social distancing anymore. We're not going to do this. And yeah, we are going to gather in small groups. Uh, and and with these new variants of the virus right now, I'm I'm concerned about what that might do to the numbers. Yeah, and and because the, the variant is so explosively transmissible, I, I think what we have to do is 
instead of looking at trends in hospitals and deaths, we have to look at trends in cases. And if we do start to reopen Ontario, as soon as those cases start to rise, which they will because of the variant, we have to um, go back into hard lockdown again to get them as low as possible. So, so like I said, you know, people are are impatient and and everyone's impatient. I, I'm impatient too. Um, but the best way to, to reopen our our, our economy uh, is to get the cases low, uh, and then we gotta we have to make contact tracing work. Maybe what you know, maybe what has to be required is is uh, is, is better enforcement of contact tracing. Um, for example, uh, you know, maybe restaurants could make sure that, that people present driver's license for their contact tracing list, those types of things. So we, we have to see better in enforcement. Uh, and, you know, if we can do that, um, then I think we can, you know, reopen sooner uh, in, in the late spring and summer and have a, and have a bit of a, a breather because the seasonal factors will also be working in our favor then. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, we have the vaccine in September. Uh, but any kind of impatience or, or sloppiness at this point, we're just going to pay for later uh, with, with an even more protracted lockdown, unfortunately. Well, I know we've been having this discussion, and I hope they're having this discussion in Queen's Park, too. And we'll find out, I guess, uh, later on this afternoon what the Premier's doing and what he means by a graduated uh, re-entry into, uh, into a more open session. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it then. Uh, as always, Chris, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. You too. Stay well. Chris Bach, of course, at uh, University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If we to work on the premise that the, the Premier is going to uh, ease things for small businesses and, and, and say, okay, the lockdown is not going to be extended past this Wednesday, which was the day it was supposed to expire anyway, uh, we have to ask ourselves just what's going to be happening and, and, and how effective this is going to be. A couple of days ago, we were talking with uh, Julie Krasinski, who is the uh, Director of Provincial Affairs for the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and uh, she shared some rather scary statistics. We're hearing from our members statistics like uh, 36% in Ontario won't survive a second lockdown. 90,000 jobs could be lost in Ontario solely due to COVID. Or how about this one? 27% of small businesses only are showing normal revenues. Pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Uh, Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Uh, Dan, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Happy to be with you. I'm hoping that this works. I want this to work. Uh, we talked to Julie. I've talked to uh, Rocco Rossi from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce about this. And the consensus I'm getting about this whole thing, Dan, is it's it's not good enough for the premier just to say, okay, you guys, you can open your doors again. Uh, they need a lifeline. I mean, this, this is like, who, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? They need, you know, phone a friend, do something. What's, what are you looking for? The, I mean, the government's got to come up with more than just, okay, take the, you know, the, the, the closed sign up and do something else. You need help. These small businesses need help. We sure do, but, but you know what? I'm, I'm not even particularly confident that the reopening announcement is is going to be a, a, a big one. Oh, yeah. Uh, the plan is, as we understand it uh, from reports over the weekend, that there'll be, over the next three weeks, uh, some of the restrictions lifted in certain parts of Ontario. Uh, so starting with uh, a few smaller regions in green zones like Kingston, they will be allowed to open and, and open reasonably widely. Most of the province, I would expect Hamilton as well, would be after Family Day, where <clears throat> where businesses would some businesses would be allowed to reopen, and finally the last week of February, Toronto, Peel, and York would be allowed to uh, to have some businesses open, but that won't be all. Uh, I would imagine that that it'll be just a small lifting of some of the restrictions in some of those regions. We're expecting retail will be allowed to reopen. But gyms, restaurant, indoor restaurant dining, we're expecting to stay closed uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks more. And, and that's what's going to kill many of these businesses. They're essentially just not going to survive because every day, every hour, business owners are making the decision to turn in their keys to the bank. And, and therein lies the problem, because I've, I've heard the same thing. I was talking to our daughter over the weekend, and she uh, actually works in one of the medium-sized cities just north of, uh, of Toronto, about 45 minutes north of there in Barrie. Uh, and and she's they're, they're hearing the same sort of thing, like, hey, this is not time to start popping champagne corks here. Uh, what we might see here and what we might hear from the Premier is let's go back to the, that color-coded system. And if you're in a red zone or an orange zone, you're very limited. And you could say bars, restaurants, all those places that are, are, are shut down right now are probably going to stay that way for maybe even past the end of February. 
Oh, there's in my mind the uh, I, I suspect that we're in for a long, long re- uh, reopening plan, one that would be phased in over months, not over days, uh, and and so you know not a lot is going to change in in February. Uh, look, getting retail open is important, uh, and what we're hoping the province will do is accept our recommendation to allow all retailers to open with a capacity restriction. So not Mm -hmm. wide open, but allow them to serve perhaps 20-25% of their former customers based on the square footage of their location. That would be enough to give those businesses a bit of an economic heartbeat until such time as we can then start to lift these restrictions further. But I'm urging the province to allow as many businesses as possible to open in these early days just to give them a trace of economic activity. So think about this. Even when businesses are fully open, <clears throat> let's say that's in, in late April, May, um, they've got to make enough money to, to pay the bills for that month, say for April or May, plus they've got to make enough money, extra money, to start to unbury themselves from the COVID debt that they've accumulated, which mm-hmm. on average is about $100,000 per business. So this is going to be a huge uphill battle. And for months and months now, we are going to see more businesses fail, not because they were prohi- they're prohibited from opening anymore. Uh, conceivably, they'll be open, but because their customers aren't going to be rushing back. This is also the slowest retail season naturally for many of these businesses. Uh, we're in for some incredibly tough months ahead, even with a staged reopening plan. You know, when the premier makes these announcements, he he's always you know quick to tell us, well, I'm, I'm listening to the medical experts, and that's how they develop policy, and you can take that for what it's worth. But are they listening to you guys, Dan? I mean, you guys are not just sitting there wringing your hands. I mean, you're talking to your members, you're, you're, you're making suggestions, you've got a, a to-do list, and say, here, Mr. Premier, this is what we need as small businesses. And I mentioned, I talked to Rocco Rossi about this on Friday from the Ontario Chamber, and they're doing the same sort of thing. So you guys are offering a game plan right now. Are, are you confident that they're listening to you and that they're going to try to implement some of that stuff? Well, a tiny bit more confident this week. Uh, look, Ontario is the last province in Canada to announce a reopening plan. Just today, uh, businesses in Quebec are, mm-hmm. are open. So, you know, if you're in Ottawa, you can drive across and, and pick up whatever you like in a small business in, in Gatineau, but you're not allowed to do that in the city of Ottawa, which makes no sense. So we needed a plan to reopen the economy weeks ago. Business owners are desperate to know so that they can begin to staff up, they can begin to buy inventory once again. These are not, you know, the Premier is very worried about supply chain issues for Walmart and Costco, but i got to tell you, there's not been a lot of sympathy for the supply chain issues and all the other challenges that small firms have faced. Yes, they put in place a small business grant, but I can we're hearing from tons of business owners. I had a call from a painter in Hamilton that said he he's not allowed to take on a new job, but because he's in a construction-related trade, He's not allowed to, to apply, even apply for the ten or twenty thousand dollar grant. Uh, that's just deeply unfair. So the province has really handled this incredibly poorly. For a government that likes to think of itself as small business friendly, they've been anything but small business friendly since the start of the pandemic. In fact, uh, it seems like the province has been going out of its way to favor big firms over small firms since COVID started. And I know they get really angry when, when guys like you say that sort of thing. But, you know, the numbers don't lie, Dan. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, the premier's always said, hey, I'm out for the little guy. No, you're not. I mean, you shut the little guy down, and you let the Costco's and the Walmart's got to continue. And, and I'm not saying let's punish Walmart and Costco now. But, let, and, and, you know, as, as Julie from your department said, put, give us a level playing field. I mean, you know, let us compete for God's sakes, would you? And they just haven't done that. No, they sure haven't. And, look, there is a pathway to to faith reopening. Very few of my, look, I have a few that are calling for all of the restrictions to be eliminated tomorrow. Uh, But I can tell you, the vast majority of business owners understand that we're still dealing with a dangerous pandemic, that they they need to take precautions, that the government needs, and in in fact, it's entirely appropriate that there are some restrictions put in place, uh, because we're still dealing with something pretty scary. But, But businesses have spent a fortune to try to in, in protect the health and safety of their of their workers, the health and safety of their customers. And there is a safe pathway to do this. I, I, I know British Columbia. BC has an NDP government. 
It has one of the most widely celebrated medical officers of health in the world, written up in the New York Times not that long ago as one of the best-performing uh, uh, public health officers in, in the world. Mm-hmm. BC didn't close down retailers for a single day during the pandemic, not even in the first wave. They allowed them to stay open with restrictions. Most provinces have allowed small firms to, to, to at least serve a limited capacity of their customers, and business owners get and understand that there need to be some restrictions in place, that this isn't the normal time, but we've got to be able to eke out a living. After all, Ontarians need jobs to come back to at the end of this pandemic, and we've just seen, and the jobs report confirmed on Friday, that there have been, there's once again, mass unemployment uh, as retailers, hospitality businesses have had to lay off staff again, which is so, so sad. Well, and the thing that really bothers me about this is before the lockdown, in other words, before Boxing Day, small business were the ones that were being compliant. I mean, they were doing just what you suggested, Dan. You know, they were limiting the number of people in the shops. They were insisting because there's only a few people allowed masking, social distancing. And and people were saying, okay, we can live with that. And then all of a sudden Boxing Day comes along and it said, we're punishing you guys, not the big guys. And, And they've done the inspections on the big guys in the last four weeks, and they're the ones that are having all the problems. Well, look, you know, you raise a, an excellent point. The average, think about the average small business that you might go into, the small furniture store, the small lighting, uh, lighting store. Talk, typically, when you go into the business, there are very few people anyway. Uh, the owner or manager or employee can actually typically see every customer in the business from, it has a clear line of sight. Uh, and so, the ability to make sure that they're A, wearing a mask, B, physically distancing, C, taking precautions, it's actually an awful lot easier than when you're in these big warehouse stores behind aisles where not a single employee is ever going to see you. Mm-hmm. And so, so uh, you know, I, it's, it's been crazy to me. In fact, I think it's, an argument could be made that the bizarre way that Ontario and Ontario alone implemented its, uh, its retail restrictions actually made COVID worse rather than better because it favored big box stores with crowds and closed tiny, quiet, small businesses. And that made no sense. At the Premier of Alberta, uh, after he did the same thing as Doug Ford in the first lockdown in the spring, before the second lockdown, he came out and made a public apology to business owners, small business owners, for allowing Walmart and Costco to stay open while he forced the others to close and said he would never do that again, thought it was incredibly inappropriate uh, action that his own government took. That's what we're. That's what I was hoping to hear from Breed Report, but we never got that. <laughs> well, hope springs eternal, I guess. We'll see what he says later on today. Uh, Dan, let's stay in touch. I really appreciate the time today, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping, as you are, and I know your members are hoping, uh, that they see the light here and they uh, they actually lend a, a hand, not just uh, you know the, the the passive way that they've approached us in the past to make sure that small business can uh, survive and then hopefully at some point in the in the future th- thrive again. Thanks so much for this. Anytime. Take care. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. A rather bizarre uh, twist of uh, fate uh, for a Hamilton City Councilor this past weekend. The, the story uh, started to rise about uh, uh, Councilor Brad Clark, who has been a guest on this show many times, of course, Ward 9 Councilor for the City Council. Uh, he has resigned his committee chairmanships and vice chairmanships uh, and asking the Integrity Commissioner to review a matter of a phone conversation that Clark had with a constituent that was taped and posted on social media. Uh, I've heard parts of that call, uh, rather bizarre, and uh, the circumstances and the result of this are uh, ra- rather embarrassing for uh, for Councillor Clark and for others as well. John Bass, President and uh, Publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. John, how are you doing today? Doing well, Bill. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, I was going to have ask you to come on and talk about the, a mini LRT, and we'll get to that probably later in the week, that uh, proposal. But then the Brad sure. Clark story uh, jumps out at you here, and I know you guys have covered this at the Bay Observer. What's your read on this? Well, um, you know, uh, Brad Clark is, uh, you know, I think generally regarded as uh, one of the more um, sober and serious uh, members of council. He, uh, you know, he, he, I, I think, He's generally regarded as somebody that holds himself to a, you know, to a high standard of uh, of conduct. So uh, this one I don't get because uh, the the person he spoke to, Paul Manning, has has been in a running battle with uh, Councillor Sam Marula. Marula has accused him of 
uh, harassing him, uh, almost stalking him in a sense, uh, certainly uh, posting stuff on Twitter and, and making allegations about him. Um, he was facing, uh, he's, um, he's on medical leave from, uh, from the police for post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and uh, you know, in the past, he has taped uh, phone conversations and posted them. So, uh, you know, caveat emptor to even pick up the phone and, and even begin a conversation with, uh, with, with those facts in, in play. But he did, and... Um, you know, we live in an unforgiving world now. Um, <laughs> Don't we? Just, you know, there's there, there's just no room for the slightest misstep now. Um, you know, there once was a time when people could have a private conversation and God knows even had the right to be outrageous. But uh, those days are gone, I guess. Well, and for those that haven't heard it, I mean, the, 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 again, I've heard snippets of this whole thing. And first of all, he's talking about something that was going on in, in Dundas, and he's a counselor for Upper Stony Creek. I don't even know why the conversation went off onto that subject. Uh, but some rather derogatory remarks, and, and uh, there was the odd F-bomb, I think, that was dropped here in the conversation, the parts I heard anyway, John, which is never good for anybody's reputation. Uh, Only but if some- you get caught. Exactly, yeah, uh, and and you know I, I'm not being naive here. That's, that's not you know that that probably happens a lot behind closed doors when they don't think microphones are there or conversations are being taped. But some rather uh, severe accusations about staff and the way in which building permits are handed out. I mean that's that was pretty heavy stuff. It was, uh, and you know I, it'd be interesting to know where that that came from now when when he issued his apology of course he said the you know what he had said was completely unfounded but uh you have to ask yourself um uh you know whether whether it was actually you know whether it was whether in his mind it was really unfounded or whether it was simply something that he couldn't prove at that moment i'm i'm not i don't have any knowledge or any inside knowledge of this but the one thing I would hope, Bill, is uh, what doesn't get lost here is that, uh, but for this uh, release of this conversation, um, we wouldn't know that a, a building permit had been issued that shouldn't have been issued. We wouldn't know that a building got built and then apparently has been ordered to be torn down and that the compensation, uh, which will be paid by the Hamilton taxpayer, is a, is a million dollars. Uh, you know, we're we're probably at a point now where a million dollars is seen as being so trivial that uh, it it doesn't warrant some kind of investigation. But I I would hope that at the very minimum, um, uh, you know, our city auditor Charles Brown uh, might take a glance at this and and see you know if there is any tightening up that needs to be done around the issuance of building permits because that's a pretty hefty price to pay for issuing a building permit that apparently from a zoning standpoint shouldn't have been issued well and and let's face it i mean you know, the insinuation from councillor clark during this conversation was that there was a little hanky panky going on in other words you know hey you know, you know brown envelopes were being exchanged to, to right. get these things done we you know in other ignoring the rules uh if if a councillor has any knowledge of that uh you don't talk to a constituent about that you go to the city manager you go to somebody else you you go to the integrity commissioner but uh from what i heard from that conversation he hasn't done that he simply decided to make that part of the conversation with the with this individual yeah and and in fairness we we heard an excerpt of of the conversation and we don't know how long the conversation was and what was said before and maybe what was said afterwards uh, so it's, you know, we, we have to have that little bit of caution when we're looking at, at what was said. But, um, yeah, I mean, certainly a lapse in, in judgment, I guess, uh, by Brad. He, uh, uh, I have no idea why he would be talking to that individual, uh, given uh, his history with, other mem- with another member of council. Um, you know, that it seems to me that uh, some kind of a red flag should have gone off uh, in any event. And, you know, in, in, I did hear the excerpt that was posted, and the, the conversation, uh, aside from what was being alleged, it, it sounded like two people that were, were, were friendly and comfortable with each other on the phone, and, and so you, you really have to question um, somebody taking a conversation like that that clearly was a totally unguarded conversation. Uh, why that would be posted? Uh, you know, what what was what was to be gained by posting that other than embarrassing a counselor or 
maybe feeding a conspiracy theory about uh, building permits in Hamilton, but there didn't appear to be any really useful purpose other than mischief in, in posting the thing. No, exactly. And uh, Brad Clark, of course, is a guy who had run for mayor previously, and, and you've heard the same rumors I have, that uh, that he actually may decide, he, at one point anyway, that, that he wanted to take another run at it in the next municipal election. Uh, stories like this certainly don't help in in that matter so we're going to continue to follow this and i know you're doing some digging on this john so uh, uh as they say in the news business uh, more to come on this one right yeah stay tuned bill <laughs> <laughs> exactly john as always thanks so much for this take care john best of course publisher of the bay observer uh following the brad clark's uh, rather bizarre saga about uh, the phone call you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml anticipating uh, the announcement from uh, premier doug ford at one o'clock this afternoon uh, about possibly lifting the lockdown. Well, it's supposed to expire by the Wednesday anyway, and uh, the indications are there's going to be what they call a phased-in approach. And I know I know, some of you are simply saying, yeah, I've been there, done that. Okay, why do these guys make the same mistakes over and over again with their political decisions? Well, our next guest might be able to shed some light on that. A fascinating essay that was uh, published in the Global Mail a couple of days ago is just one concept and one idea of our next guest. Uh, Dr. Jillian Horton, who is the General Internist and Associate Chair in the Department of Internal Medicine and the Director of the Allen Class Medical Humanities Program at Max Brady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, will join us on the program right now and talk to us about a, a number of different things. First of all, Doctor, I'm so glad you could join us. I read your piece the other day. And I was so fascinated by this, and it was like, aha, now I see where this is all coming from. Uh, and and I'm, I'm so glad you could join us and talk about this today. Thanks so much for this. Oh, my pleasure to be here with you, Bill. All right, I want to talk about a couple, and we're going to hear some phrases, and you're going to explain them to us in in different terms. But as I'm reading this, I mean, the the one thing that kept coming to mind is uh, that old thing about you know what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and yeah. expecting a different result. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. You look at it more clinically than this, with phrases such as a sunk cost fallacy and and some other things that uh, that uh, not just we, but even our political leaders seem to be guilty of, including things. Maybe we should start with uh, situational awareness and. Kind to work from there. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I'd say, Bill, is that medicine gives us a lot of really interesting frameworks for understanding how we can get stuck when we are um, contemplating really complicated problems. And of course, in medicine, we're highly motivated to understand those places where we can get stuck, because if we get stuck, it can cost somebody their life. Mm -hmm. So situational awareness is one of the concepts that is really uh, fundamental to anyone who looks after critically ill patients. And it's the idea that disasters happen slowly. This is one of my favorite axioms as a teacher, that usually when something terrible is happening, it doesn't suddenly present itself to you as a five-alarm fire with, you know, all all the signals that we normally think of that indicate that something is an emergency. There's a long phase beforehand of little clues. And one of the things our minds are wired to do, our minds, you know, like to be in a state of happiness and uh, sort of just, you know, being able to um, relax and be happy. So we do have this tendency that when these early distressing signs come along, the ones that aren't, like I said, the five-alarm fire kinds of things, we have this tendency to say, well, I can find another explanation for that. Or, you know, this. what are the chances that this terrible, rare situation is happening? It's more likely that there's a, a logical explanation for that. And as a result, our minds can just get led, you know, down this path of completely misreading a crisis. And time after time again, some of the worst mistakes that you ever see in medicine, in aviation, or in other industries involved with safety involve those same kinds of, you know, slow chain reactions of mistakes, one thought after another, and we completely lose the understanding that what's happening is actually an evolving emergency. Is it because we try to minimize what we see and say, oh, this is no big deal, or hey, this is never going to amount to much or anything? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely um, one aspect of it. You know, and another thing is uncommon things are uncommon. So, you know, just like if you are a bird watcher and you see a bird uh, flying into a forest, you know, if there's one really rare bird in that forest and several very common birds, you know, just simple probabilities are that the most likely thing that you just saw flying was the more common bird, you know, not the rare mm -hmm. bird. 
And sometimes what happens is, you know, you get a glimpse of the color or the sign that indicates, oh, this is actually the rare bird, the less common thing. But our minds kind of go, well, it seems less likely. And we fall into all these traps of, you know, thinking that what has just happened before is is a un, um, an infallible uh, predictor of what is about to happen next. So that's one part of it. And the second part is our minds don't like dissonance. You know, we don't like one of the examples I used in uh, the Globe and Mail article from the summer about situational awareness is, you know, if you go, uh, you see a child in your office or you see a friend who's having a symptom that is really concerning, you know, you like your friend, you want the best thing for your friend. So, you know, there's a part of your mind that even if you think to yourself, oh, that's ominous, my friend might have a brain aneurysm or a brain tumor, because you like this person, because you care for them, there's a part of your brain that is going to try to minimize the serious nature of what's happening. That's called an affective error, where our emotional affect actually influences the quality of our decisions. So you can see that getting some kind of understanding of where our minds are just wired to lead us astray can be highly protective in these situations where we need to be able to neutralize that impact so we can really see what's in front of us. So when you have people that don't do that and that that, that are aware of, of any little inconsistency and say, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, are they... Uh, I guess by extension, Doctor, would they be ones that, that we would label as cool under pressure? In other words, they don't get rattled because they, they're seeing something developing here. And, and you know, they're like, like, again, I'm using a lot of the cliches we use, two steps ahead of everybody else uh, yeah. in anticipating what could happen here. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, when we think about it, this is like a role that people train for. You know, and when you think mm-hmm. of one of the examples that I love is Captain... Um, uh, Sullenberg, selling the, yeah, Sully, yeah. and the miracle on the Hudson, right? He, you know, he wasn't just able to do that because he's an incredibly talented pilot. I mean, he had trained for that scenario probably hundreds, if not thousands of times in his life to know that as it was evolving, you know, he literally had seconds, right? As you say, two steps ahead of the emergency to decide how am I going to react, you know, or he didn't have the time to think, well, what are the, what's the likelihood that two different birds flew into two different engines and took them out? You know, if he got stuck in that phase of arguing and saying, this can't be, this is unlikely, everybody on that airplane would have died because he would have wasted that precious time, you know? And so it's another example of just how um, training to be those, as you say, Bill, those two steps ahead of the situation, um, you know, is is critical. It's a a life-saving skill. But one of the challenges, as the pandemic has really brought to light, is, you know, people are wired to want to not believe the worst case scenario. So that's another problem, right? By the time the plane yeah. is about to crash, everyone can see that it's a crisis, but it's too late then. And this is, I think you um, you know, talk about situational awareness. The piece that I wrote in the Globe and Mail um, was around August 5th, the first uh, editorial about, or opinion piece rather, about, mm-hmm. um, you know, these cognitive errors. And five days, seven days later, our province reopened and said we were ready for business again. And actually, you know, you look back and say, if we hadn't done that, if we'd carry on with this framing that this is an emergency, like, we'd probably be Nova Scotia right now. We would have avoided hundreds of deaths. And, you know, this devastating, chronic, agonal blow to the economy that goes on and on. So it's just, um, it's a really hard thing to make people aware of when, you know, they have a tendency, especially people who think, oh, I trust my gut. Actually, sometimes we can't trust our gut. Sometimes our gut, as, I, as with all these examples, is, is feeding us false information because of all these hardwired patterns in us. I have, and our listeners can, can certainly verify this, I've been very critical of, of not just the Ontario government, but all the governments here in mm-hmm. the handling of this uh, for, for what I've characterized as half measures and, and not doing what needs to be done, uh, especially when you compare it to some of the other places, as you said, like New Zealand and other places that, that decided, okay, you know, we're 
I, I see what's going on here, and here's what we're going to do. Uh, but you put a label on this, which I think is very helpful. It's a sunk cost fallacy. Uh, and I don't know why it is, Doctor, but all of our elected officials seem to suffer from this. Yeah. Uh, and it goes back to the idea of we're doing the same thing because, well, that's how we've always done things like this. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's not working, and they know mm-hmm. it doesn't work, but they mm-hmm. do it anyway. Yeah. I, you know, and I think one thing that ties into, so just to recap what that um, what that particular error is that you alluded to, Bill, it's the idea that um, most of us can understand it when we look at examples from our personal life. So say you move several times and you have a really ugly piece of furniture and you think, oh, I hate that sofa. It's so ugly, but I've had it forever. And the last time I moved, I brought it with me and I paid a lot of money for it, so I shouldn't get rid of it. So even though this furniture, you know, maybe this sofa has like a wire poking through it, maybe you're dog vomited on it it's really ugly it's taking up space in your house you've brought it with you you've made it an investment and this is the idea of how what we actually should do in a particular moment you know if a friend came and looked at that sofa they'd say why are you even keeping that thing it's hideous you know you'd say well i I kept doing it and it's this idea that things that we've invested time or energy in before even if we can't recoup those costs we somehow get caught up in this idea that continuing to hang on to the original course of action or investment somehow mitigates or minimizes our losses. And of course it doesn't, right? This is sort of a just an idea, just a, a rut that our minds get into. So I think sometimes this... You know, you can see examples of our leaders getting stuck in this. And this is one of the reasons that I'm really concerned right now with the new variants just beginning to uh, show mm-hmm. up in large numbers in the country. You know, I'm concerned a lot of provinces, including ours, are talking about reopening additional things. And I say to myself, I know that if they open the restaurants for face-to-face dining, for example, and I, like, can I also just add, like you, I'm sure, Bill, I'm devastated for these businesses. I mean, these businesses are owned by our friends, our neighbors, our patients our fellow community members. I mean, I don't say this lightly, but, you know, I think, for example, if, uh, let's say, the Manitoba government tomorrow opens our restaurants again, or not tomorrow, but when the next order Mm -hmm. is set to expire, what's going to happen is if the variants suddenly rise and it becomes obvious that, you know, this was a really bad decision, they're going to be slower than they should be to open, to close them down again. And it's, again, because of that sunk cost. I did something. I invested, and I talk about in the article as, you know, not just money, but social capital, leadership capital. So I staked my name behind this decision. It is really hard then if a couple of days later or a week later it suddenly becomes obvious that this is another looming catastrophe. Our tendency is going to be actually the opposite of what it should be to change course, our tendency is going to be to dig ourselves in even deeper and to say, well, we can, you know, hang on, do it a little bit longer. And this is just a classic pattern that we're seeing in most places in the world right now that have done poorly managing COVID, that people just cannot pivot and change course quickly enough. And just like the example I gave with Sully, you know, you don't have those few seconds to think, well, am I right? Am I wrong? You have to be more reactive in all these thinking problems. Well, because if you are prepared, and let's let's continue with the the, the Sully example. Uh, in all those training sessions that he did, Doctor, and I should say probably hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, at no time did they ever say just landed on the uh, on the river. Okay, yeah. uh, but he looked at the situation and said. Yeah. That's that's what I got to do, uh, you know. And, and as you know, we saw in the, the movie that Tom Hanks started, and of course about that whole story, uh, he was being encouraged and yelled at. As a matter of fact, by the air traffic controls, no, 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 go here, go. And he's no, I can't. In other words, th- again, that situational awareness. I know what you, I know what the book says I'm supposed to do, but that's not going to work. I'm I'm here. I'm the one of the controls. But yeah. our elected officials, sadly, uh, tend to think in in four year cycles. In other words, is yeah. this decision I'm going to make get me reelected? Uh, so they think short term. They don't think about yeah. that big picture. Uh, and therein lies part of the problem here, where we find ourselves in the pickle that we're in right now, because they they think they're doing the safe thing to do and it's not the yeah. safe thing to do uh we've never been through a pandemic in our lifetimes before uh but they said st- they, they still think there's a playbook here and there isn't i totally and you know the irony of course is that the sh- you know short-term pain for long-term gain i mean making some of these decisions at the beginning that perhaps looked overly cautious were unpopular with lots of 
people, lots of business owners, lots of individuals, you know. I mean, the countries that took those aggressive measures that looked like they were going over the top, that listened to the experts, you know, to the to the sullies who were able to really see, you know, up in the air, see the full picture of what was happening. I mean, those people now are reaping the benefits. And it's the people who, um, you know, looked at it more like, well, short term, this is going to make my constituents unhappy. My job is to please everybody. You know, I sometimes, again, think of it in terms of a medical analogy. If I have a patient in front of me who's critically ill, you know, every patient is involved with has several organ systems, right? Well, if kidneys, mm-hmm. hearts, livers, every organ has a specialist that is an expert in that organ. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself the other day, if the model of care in the hospital was that the specialists acted as lobby groups, you know, if I was going to treat a patient <laughs> for a life-threatening condition, say with chemotherapy, and chemotherapy sometimes damages the kidneys and it sometimes damages the heart. But what's the goal? The goal is to save your patient's life. And, you know, imagine trying to provide clinical care and suddenly every specialist is a, a lobbyer and says, well, you know, I'm concerned that you're going to damage the heart and the kidney specialists start to put pressure on you that you're going to, you know, decrease the functioning of the kidneys. Like you kill every single patient that you looked after. You'd get caught up in the wrong things, the the interests, the special interest groups who understandably, you know, are concerned about people's livelihoods and, and all the, um, you know, the businesses and the things that people have spent their entire lives building but it's misguided because at the end of the day, if the patient dies, you know, and the patient in the analogy is, you know, if our society just continues to stumble along our economy, um, our management of COVID until, you know, we finally have sort of that critical number of people vaccinated, which is going to be still quite a while from now, we've entirely missed the point of emergency management and we've missed our opportunity to get the situation under control. Well, like I say, it was revealing and, and, and refreshing for me to read this. Uh, and uh, for our listeners, by the way, uh, you just Google uh, Dr. Jillian Horton, and uh, there'll, there'll be links there when you do that uh, about the pieces that we just talked about here. Uh, pleasure having you on the show today, Doctor. Thank you so much for your perspective on this and for shining the light on this. And I'm hoping this is going to be required reading for every elected official as we go through this. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. And I just want to say one more thing, which is that I'm sure. a proud McMaster graduate. I went ah. to medical school at Mac, and I think that is one of the places where uh, I'm proud to say I really learned critical thinking, and I learned ways of thinking about problems differently, and I think they're serving me well right now. So thank you so much. They certainly are. Thanks again, Doctor. Take care. My pleasure. You too, Bill. Dr. Jillian Horton, uh, McMaster graduate, of course, who's now, of course, out in Winnipeg, uh, applying her trade. And uh, again, elected officials, read up on this, okay? And let's start making some intelligent decisions, not just doing it because that's the way it's always been done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.